Well, good morning, you guys. We are glad you guys are back from the Thanksgiving break. We are going to be Hebrews chapter 7 this morning. So if you guys will turn to Hebrews chapter 7. As you guys turn there, let me uh, remind you, gentlemen, uh, do you guys know what's happening the weekend of February 4th to 6th? That was weak. All right, February 4th to 6th is men's retreat. retreat. All right. Also, it's my birthday, Um, just as a... Mark your calendar kind of thing. February 4th, all right? Starbucks gift cards, they're accepted, all right? So uh, seriously, though, aside, uh, men's retreat, February 4th to 6th for all adult college men. We'd love for you guys to be there. We want to kind of get it in front of you guys early. Mark your calendars. It'll come quickly once you guys return from the break. And so we'd love for you guys to be there, Um, especially for you college guys. Let me just say, it's probably one of the best moments in the life of our church to get to know some adult men. And so if you're looking for kind of get to know the body here at Grace even better, getting to know some adult men and getting to be kind of a part of their lives, it's a great starting spot for that to happen is is men's retreat. So I'd love for you guys to put that on your calendar. If you want to go ahead and sign up, you can sign up online. I'd love to have you guys there. All right. Uh, Hebrews 7. We're going to be uh, verses 1 to 22 this morning. And so let me read for uh, for the first four verses, and then we're going to pray. Chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Why don't you pray with me this morning? Father God, we give you great thanks uh, that you, Father, are immortal, that you are invisible, uh, that you are sovereign, that you are holy. And Lord, we thank you that even in those attributes, you are one who is kind, who's merciful, who's gracious, who's not a creator and then has left the world, but is a creator who's remained to sustain it and also interact with us individually, Lord. Father, I pray this morning that you would uh, show up. I pray that you would be present. I pray that you would move. Um, Father, I pray for a lot of us, no matter where we are as we've walked in this morning, no matter the issues that we are wrestling with, no matter the things that are going on in our life, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to hear you, and that you would continue to move our heart and our emotions in accordance with truth. And that as we open your word, Lord, I pray that you would teach us, that you would stretch us, Lord. I pray that you would give us hearts that are responsive wherever it is you would lead and whatever it is you'd have to say to us. Father, I pray that you'd move me out of the way, Lord, and that you would allow my words to be yours and that you would allow this time to be whatever it is that you see fit. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. One of the first Christmases after Marcy and I got married as a newlywed couple, we spent uh, with my parents and they took us on an all-expense-paid trip to Cancun, all right? It was going to be Christmas in Mexico. It was awesome also because it was free, all right? So on a beach, hotel, air flight, food, activities all paid for. We got to hang out with my family. It was great. Had a great time. On the way there in the airport, we checked in, and as the ticket agent was kind of watching Marcy and I interact early on in our marriage, she concluded that we were on our honeymoon as newlyweds and upgraded us to first class, all right? Uh, Phenomenal opportunity, all right? As you guys can imagine, we were ecstatic, obviously, Marcy, being the gracious, always sympathetic, always sensitive person that she is, unlike me, uh, decided to try to give those upgraded tickets to my parents, since they were, of course, paying for everything, and surely any privilege we would have gotten, we ought to have passed on to them. Well, it kind of the, air flight, the plane and the stewardesses didn't really allow that, and so we couldn't really change with them. And so what I did instead was take every moment I could to make them jealous, all right? So uh, over the course of the plane ride, I'd look down the aisle, I had an aisle seat, and I kind of looked down as if like they were miles away while we were up in the front, right? 
the meals were completely different. They had, you know, a breakfast granola bar and a, and a stale muffin, and we had omelets. You know, it was just amazing in first class. Lunch came around, and if you've ever flown first class, you need to, all right? Some phenomenal. Uh, after lunch or main meals, you get, you know, homemade ice cream sundaes, all right? You know, and so I got this ice cream sundae. I'm putting it in the aisle so my parents can see it, you know, rows and rows back, all right? Uh, awesome trip, awesome flight up there, awesome trip. And on the way back, Marcy and I decided to go two for two, all right? So we in the airport uh, this time intentionally began to play up the PDA, uh, began to play up the, the newlywed life that we had, all right? Thinking, surely they notice us again and again, upgrade us to first class, all right? The problem was this ticket agent was recently divorced and seeing our interactions began to tell us that marriage was a horrible mistake, all right? Uh, so not only were we a little bit, you know, kind of cold water thrown on our passion and our fire, but also we were kind of disappointed to not get first class, all right? In many regards, as great as the trip was that we had, that round trip really was a tale of two different agents, okay? Two different ticket agents. One who had access to first class flying and had the power and the willingness to grant it to us. And another one who may or may not have had that access, but either way didn't have the power or the willingness to grant us access to that, all right? In many regards, that flight was a tale of two agents. And a lot of times it's not just in flying that you guys have experienced those two different kinds of agents. Anytime you've called in because you have problems with your cell phone or your internet or your computer and you call in to get a customer service agent, right? And you often find one of two different kinds of agents. One who has access to the things that you need and has the power and the willingness to grant them to you. And another one that you vain and you wonder why they exist who seems to have access to those things but has no power or willingness to grant them to you, right? And it's incredibly frustrating, that second kind, all right? What we're going to see this morning in Hebrews 7 is that the writer of Hebrews is going to give us really a tale of two different kinds of priests. Two different kinds of priests that are really going to mirror the kind of ticket agents or customer service agents that we often run into. One is going to have full access to all that God could provide. And another who's going to have limited access and also not have the power or the willingness and the ability to grant those things at times. We're going to see two different kinds of priests. And the first kind is going to be the kind that we're going to see in Jesus Christ. The kind of priest who's going to have an opportunity to grant full access to you and I to all that God has and to all that God is. And he's going to have the power and the willingness to grant those things as well. We're going to see that contrasted. Jesus' priesthood contrasted in many ways with the Old Testament priesthood that we see throughout the Old Testament that didn't have the same access that they could grant to God to the people. Also, they not only had limited access, but they also had limited power of what they could grant. And so what we're going to see in Hebrews 7 is a comparison of two different kinds of priests. And Jesus being, of course, the superior one. In in many ways, what we're going to see in Hebrews 7 is that the writer is going to return to a discussion about a man named Melchizedek. If you remember uh, at the beginning or toward midway through chapter 5, it began to bring him up, but it said, you know what, you guys aren't ready for this. It's kind of complex. And so he comes back to it a chapter and a half later when I guess whatever their issue was, it had been resolved. And he comes back to it and begins to talk about what he wanted them to hear about this guy named Melchizedek. Melchizedek, many ways, is going to be a great prototype. He's going to be kind of the pattern, the mold in which Jesus is going to fill in his priesthood, all right? Melchizedek, to me, you're going to get a whole chapter of him in in the New Testament here in Hebrews 7. We're going to see him also in Genesis 14. We'll kind of look at that a little bit later this morning. But in regards, Melchizedek doesn't really show up that much. We don't get a lot about Melchizedek. And yet I think he's really fascinating as we take a look at him. He's going to be a prototype for the priest that Jesus is going to be. I've, I've always been fascinated with him, and I've often thought to myself, what a great name for a future son. Um... And as you ladies laugh, you can guess I've never really led to that conversation with Marcy because it would go nowhere, right? There's all kinds of Old Testament names that are not really good to pattern for your kids. And so Melchizedek's not really a great name to pattern after, all right? But he's going to be a great mold in which we'll see Jesus' priesthood fill and then surpass. It's going to be the mold, the prototype that Melchizedek 
is and was that's going to really shape for us as we're going to understand what is the nature of Jesus' priesthood. It is going to be the nature of Jesus' priesthood that really is the dominant theme and the dominant topic of discussion throughout the entire book of Hebrews, really starting kind of in chapter 5 and then moving on really to about chapter 10 or 11. It is going to be the theme and the, and the nature of Jesus' priesthood, and we're really get kicking on it here. And what you're going to see in particular is kind of as we begin, as we look at the prototype Melchizedek, is that this, that Jesus is a kind of priest that's also a kingly priest. Jesus is going to be the kind of priest that you did not see in the Old Testament, except for this one little guy, Melchizedek. Hebrews is going to talk about him, and what we're going to see is that Melchizedek begins to form the mold of the kind of priest that Jesus will be, and the kind of priest that we never saw in the Old Testament. In particular, what we're going to see is a priest who is also kingly. Look with me again, verse, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils was first of all by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Notice who was Melchizedek. We find in Genesis 14, Abraham goes out and in one of his better moments in the course of his storyline, he has a great moment and he slaughters a conglomeration of evil kings. He has great faith that he goes out trusting that God will provide for him and he slaughters these kings. And in the aftermath of the heels of his victory, this guy Melchizedek comes out of nowhere comes out of nowhere. We find in Genesis 14 that he's a priest, but he's also a king. And he comes and he, and he praises God. He teaches Abraham who God is. And then what happens is that Melchizedek blesses Abraham and Abraham gives to Melchizedek a tithe. He gives to him a monetary offering. And so what we see in Genesis 14, and as the writer of Hebrews will pick up here, is that Melchizedek was one who was a priest and a king. He was a priest of the most high God, but he was also a king. In fact, we see kind of two different attributes of his kingship, of his kingdom. He says here he was a king. His name Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. And he was king of Salem, which is king of peace. That, that the two attributes of his kingly ship were righteousness and peace. In fact, he was not just a king that was righteous and of peace, but he was also a priest. He fills a, he fills a set of offices in one person that we do not see in the Old Testament until we get to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. He fills the office of king and he fills the office of priest. Well, why is that significant? It's going to be significant because it's going to be a pattern of what we're going to see of Jesus, the king who will come. Notice Isaiah speaks of the king who will come one day. He says this of the king that will come. He says, Isaiah 32, Behold, a king will come one day who will reign righteously. And as the spirit is poured out upon us from on high, then justice will dwell. And the work of righteousness will be peace and the service of righteousness. Then my people will live in a peaceful habitation. Isaiah is going to speak of a king who's going to come one day and he's going to reign with righteousness, with peace. And the reason why it's a future prophecy and the reason why it would have really stood out to them is that as, they looked, as Israel looked at their history, they never really saw this kind of king. They never really saw a king who reigned righteously and with peace and who set up a kingdom that brought them peace and brought them stability on the land. They never saw the full fulfillment of what God wanted to do and what he's going to bring with a king one day. In fact, what we see throughout the Old Testament is that God maintains a separation between the priest and the king. In fact, it's Saul who, in, in haste of a battle, is going to offer the priestly sacrifice, and because of that, he gets in all kind of trouble. All right, in the Old Testament, the office of king and the office of priest were kept separate. Well, why is that significant? 
I think it's significant because as you look even at world history, it's going to be interesting. You're going to always see that when religion and when politics, when kingly power and priestly religion get, get mixed together, they never turn out very good. So a couple of things even about our own democracy, all right? I think a couple of fascinating things about uh, the political system of democracy that we have is that I think it's built at some level on a supposition that really fits with the biblical teaching about human depravity. The idea being that you cannot put a king in power and give him absolute power over everything. And so democracy was built with a set of checks and balances and a set of separation of powers because if you gave one man absolute power, it would absolutely corrupt him, all right? There was an understanding even, I think, from the founding fathers that human depravity was such that when a man is king, if he's given all authority and all power, it does not go well. In fact, it wasn't just that the king had depravity, but he also therefore had limited authority. And so even in democracy, even in the kind of world system that we live in, you have a separation of church and state. You have a separation of religion and politics, partly being because nowadays in times, the king has not just depravity, but he has limited authority. Historically speaking, as you look at church history, you look at world history, whenever kings get control of religion or, or church religion gets control of kings, it never goes well for anybody, all right? Because ultimately, whether it's in the church, in religion, or it's in politics and a king and a president, ultimately you have people who are still depraved and who are still broken and their character is such that they don't produce perfectly righteousness and peace. But what the writer Hebrews is going to say, there's one who's coming who's not going to be just the priestly mediator, not just a ticket agent that can grant you access to God, but he's also going to be one who has absolute power. You and I get frustrated by customer service agents who have access to things, but they don't have the power to grant them. And what the writer of Hebrews is going to say here of Jesus Christ, he's going, to come, he's going to be one who comes not just as king, but also as priest. One who can't just act, grant us access to God, but he's going to grant us access to God that's even better than the Old Testament priest. But he's going to do it as one who has the absolute authority, dominion, and reign and power of God himself because he is God. Ultimately, when Jesus comes, we're going to find the office of priest and the office of king wedded in one whose character is such that he can perfectly reign and rule and represent and provide access to humanity. No one else can do that. Only Jesus Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews starts out saying he's going to be like Melchizedek, who was a king and a priest, and he's going to be superior to all other priests that will come. He's going to be unlike all other priests that come. In fact, kind of for me, as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, you know, what's really fascinating, even as we start here in Hebrews 7, as we think about the Christmas season coming, is Hebrews 7 is talking about one who is king and priest, one who has all power and all authority. And yet you think about Christmas and the coming of a a mere baby, a mere uh, child in a manger, one who comes in weakness, one who comes in humility. And it's going to be that one that's going to have all power and all access to God as a priest and as a king that will bring humanity peace, unlike anyone else can or ever will until he returns. The hope for world peace is not in treaties. The hope for world peace comes in one who can come and can reign with righteousness and establish peace unlike any else can and anyone else will. That's the great hope for you and I. And he's going to do it not just for nations, but he does it even individually for us within our hearts. The only one that can grant us righteousness, the only one that can grant us peace is one who is a priest and a king, and it's Jesus Christ. For you in our lives, the only peace that we'll ever find is when we're in right relationship with Jesus Christ, when we're in right relationship with God. And that right relationship reestablishes a peace and a safety and a security and a joy and a satisfaction that none of life provides apart from that reconciliation of that relationship. And what we're going to see is that priest that will come is one who's going to lay down his own life to provide the means for that reconciliation. This morning, I want to challenge you that if you don't know Jesus Christ, the only way to find righteousness and peace, the only way for your life to not be a complete wreck and to have it remedied and have it reconstructed is in one who doesn't come just to redeem, but he also comes to restore. He's a forgiver and he's a restorer. 
He comes to cleanse the penalty of our sins and he comes also to transform our very beings. And we're going to see that even as we get here later on in this passage this morning. That it is Jesus Christ, the priest, who can provide us access back to the Father. And as king, he has all power to change our status and to bring forgiveness and to change our life. He and he alone can do that. But notice the writer of Hebrews is going to go on further and he's going to say he's not just superior because he's powerful, right? He's going to say next that he's superior because he's also eternal and he's superior. Look with me, verse 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he, Melchizedek, remains a priest perpetually. What in the world, who in the world was Melchizedek, all right? The writer of Hebrews says that he had no mother, he was without father, without mother, he was without genealogy, and he had neither beginning of days nor end of life. <laughs> what is the writer of Hebrews trying to say about Melchizedek? Was Melchizedek an angel? Did he just kind of come out of nowhere? Uh, some would argue that he was an angel. Some would argue that he was actually a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm going to argue for a different thing, and I think what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that he was actually human, but there was no record of his genealogy. There was no record of his birth, of his father, of his mother, or even what happened to him. He shows up out of nowhere in Genesis 14 and disappears out of nowhere. He seems to not have beginning, and he seems to not have end. And in a sense, the writer of, of Hebrews is making an argument from the silence of the Old Testament. The Old Testament does not tell us who Melchizedek was born to. It doesn't tell us even where he came from or where he went. We just, he just shows up on the scene and then he disappears just like he showed up. And the writer of Hebrews, I think, is not saying that he's an angel. The writer of Hebrews is kind of making an argument from the silence of the Old Testament to argue actually for his superiority. Let me give you guys another example. A lot of you guys know our, one of our interns, Titus, got engaged about a month ago. Uh, some of y'all don't know this, and she's not the kind that draws attention to herself, but uh, Vanessa, who did announcements this morning, got engaged right after Thanksgiving, all right? Um, that's what I'm talking about, all right? So <laughs> Vanessa's a little worried, but she doesn't know where this illustration is going right now. Okay, um, now I want to imagine for just a second, uh, Jordan, who proposed to Vanessa, Titus, who proposed to Crystal, I want you to imagine for a second that these two guys, Jordan and Titus, uh, plan elaborate evenings, elaborate plans as they did, and they get down on a knee, and they confess to these women, I love you and I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Imagine, though, if in their response, it was just silent. <laughs> okay, first of all, can you imagine the awkwardness of that, right? Um, and then the sheer horror for these guys, right? Because they just dropped thousands of dollars on rings, and they're getting nothing, okay? <laughs> Not purely pragmatic, but also because it doesn't seem like these women want to spend their lives with them, right? Even more so, right? The silence communicates something, all right? What the writer of Hebrews is just doing is saying that the silence communicates something, not that he's an angel, not that he's or even a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus Christ, but that there's something unique and superior about this one. The Old Testament doesn't give us a record of him. And so in some ways, just like we don't really have a record in some regards of Jesus Christ, so is the sense that we'll see that neither Melchizedek seemingly dies, nor does Jesus. And that therefore, they are going to be priests who are going to come and leave and yet remain forever. There's a similarity. That's why he's going to say, therefore Melchizedek is like, was made like the Son of God. He remains a priest perpetually. The point here is that Melchizedek is a prototype for the priesthood of Jesus. Not just that Melchizedek was a king and a priest, but also that Melchizedek doesn't seem to have a beginning of days nor an end of days, and therefore his priesthood was one that did not end. It did not cease. It did not stop. So is going to be the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He's one who seems to not have end. And in fact, this great contrast to the Old Testament and the, the priests of the Old Testament. In fact, later on in Hebrews, we'll find this. The writer says, The former priests of the Old Testament, the Aaronic, the Levitical priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. So the Old Testament priests kept dying, therefore more priests were needed. They kept filling in, replacing each other, and kept moving on like that. 
Um, but Jesus, on the other hand, in contrast, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. So there's a distinction in the priesthood of Jesus and the priesthood of the Old Testament, all right? But here's, here's the take home. Here's the point that really matters to you and I. Therefore, Jesus is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Okay, the, the priesthood of Jesus is different than the priesthood of the Old Testament priests in that the Old Testament priests were cycling through over and over again. Let me take you back to my analogy of the customer service agent. You ever called into Dell? You've been on the phone for, or whoever, for about an hour, because this would never happen with Macs, apparently, all right? And so you call in, right, because uh, of a PC-based system, and you call in, you're on the phone for an hour for a problem you're having, and then something happens, and you get disconnected, right? And then you have to call back, and guess what happens? You probably don't get the same agent, right? You have to start back all over with another one, and it's incredibly, you want to pull your hair out, Okay. The point here is not just that this agent, this priest, Jesus, has all power to fix your situation, but he's also one who's never off the books. He's never off the clock. He's never out for lunch. He's always your priest. He's always available. He's always accessible. He's unlike the Old Testament priests that were turning over, that were unavailable at different times. He's always available. And so he can grant all access. He has all power, and he's always available. He's unlike all the other priests, and therefore he's superior, and he's different, and he stands apart. He grants all access, all the privileges, all the blessings of God. He has all the power to change our status, to do what the law, to do what priests of the Old Testament could not do. And we'll see that in a minute. And he's always available to you and I. He's never out to lunch. He's never out of the shop. He's never busy. He's always ready and he's always available to hear us and to respond to us and to grant us that which we need. And the writer of Hebrews is going to go on further and he's going to say, it's not just that he's superior because he's always available and then he's going to be in his, in his priesthood perpetually but he's just flat out superior and he's better than every other priest that came in the Old Testament. He says it in uh, verse four, notice he says, now observe how great this man Melchizedek was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, the founder of the nation of Israel gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people that is from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy Melchizedek is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. What's the writer of Hebrews' point? His point is, the reason why Melchizedek is superior is because he's better than Abraham. <laughs> he's just flat better. In fact, he's not only is he better than Abraham, he's going to say, since he's better than Abraham, he's better than every other priest that would come in the Old Testament. And notice how he argues it, kind of interestingly, verses 8 to 10. He says, In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them, of who it is witness that he lives on. And so to speak through Abraham, even Levi of the Levitical priesthood system of the Old Testament, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father Abraham when Melchizedek met him. Kind of the writer of Hebrews is kind of making two arguments for the superiority of the Melchizedek priesthood. First is because he blessed Abraham, the one who does the blessing is greater than the one who's blessed. So uh, because Melchizedek blesses Abraham, Melchizedek is better than Abraham. The second argument he makes is, hey, since the whole Old Testament priesthood was descended genealogically from Abraham, therefore, since they were, in a sense, in the loins of Abraham, yet to be born, and Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, therefore, even that whole priesthood, even that whole system is inferior to the one of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is better than Abraham, and he's better than the entire Old Testament priesthood. He's better. And so what the writer of Hebrews does, and as you'll notice, he's going to say, there's a bunch of tithing going on, all right? Uh, what's interesting, I think, as you see through the Old Testament system and even what you see in Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek in Genesis 14, that even as it's told here in Hebrews 7, is that you see a response of the lesser to the greater. 
You see a response of the lesser to the greater. What's that response? You have the greater, you have a priest who is always available, one who has all power and who can grant all access and all privilege to those who, who would approach. And you, what you see is, is the response of those who approach. How do they approach? Abraham approaches and he gives an offering. He gives what's known in the Old Testament as a tithe. In fact, if you look at the Old Testament system, the entire nation was to give a tithe to the priesthood so that they could establish and that they could serve and do worship within the nation of Israel. What you see in a response to that priesthood is a response of worship by offering, okay? Partly that offering came in the sacrificial system as they offered animals that often came with great cost and they had those sacrificed to, to, in a sense, cover over their sin. But they also just gave monetary offerings to the priests themselves so that they could establish, set up, and execute worship within the nation so that the nation could come and worship God. One of the things I want you guys to see this morning, and we don't talk about this a lot, especially in a college-only audience, is that part of our worship Part of what you and I are called to do as we approach this kind of superior priest is a response of tithing and of worship. Part of our response of worship isn't just a declaration of song, but part of what you and I are called to do is to give an offering, not just of our time, but even of our money. And, and I want to come at a myth that I think exists in your seats, that existed when I was a student, and that still exists sometimes in my mind when I think of you guys, all right? And the myth is this, all college students are poor, okay? <laughs> um, the reality is a lot of you guys are working, Okay? And a lot of you guys are in debt for school, and you are, by definition, poor. I'll give it to you, I'll give it to you okay? But there are a lot of you guys, and this is going to be a, a huge wake-up for you, uh, you actually have more discretionary money right now <laughs> than you're going to have when you graduate and you get a job, okay? Because as you come away from parents, as you gain, gain financial independence, what you're going to realize is you're making some money for the first time. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, okay? But the reality of life is that you're going to have a lot of that taken by Uncle Sam, government, praise the Lord. And you're going to have um, a lot of that taken just by living life, all right? Money for utilities, money for rent. When you're not living with three or four or five other guys, okay, uh, all of a sudden it gets divvied up and you've got a lot more on your plate to pay for. I remember when, we first, when I first graduated, I had first set of jobs. I realized, man, I am financially independent, but I have less money for movies, for lattes, for books, for shoes, for things that just seem fun. I actually realized I got a lot more money coming in, but I'm actually poor than I was in college when all I was spending my money on was movies, lattes, Toms, whatever you want to buy. It's spoons, okay? Uh, you guys actually, in some regard, have more discretionary money now than you're going to when you get out of college. And that may depress you, okay? Uh, hopefully it doesn't, okay? But the, the challenge I want to give you is how do you think about your money now? And how are you going to think about your money in the future? A huge part of your response to the Lord, a huge part of your response in worship is, to, is a giving of back of what God has actually put in your hands. And one of the really interesting things in the Genesis 14 narrative, and the writer of Hebrews brings it up here, is that you're going to get in that story in the midst of God moving and doing amazing things. Melchizedek comes and he teaches Abraham who God is. He tells him God is the God of most high. In a sense, it's, he's possessor of heaven and earth. He owns everything. And in light of the fact that he owns everything, you see Abraham give back to what he had received from the Lord or what the Lord had enabled. Lord willing, you guys are going to graduate from here one day. You're going to, Lord willing, get a job. And Lord willing, you'll get a salary, okay? That salary is not because you worked. That salary is because God in his grace has provided for you, okay? And that salary is not yours. It is his. And so an aspect of our stewardship of what he's provided is the giving him back in worship and offering to him. So one of the things I want to challenge you to do is not just begin to think about your money once you get out of here, but I want to begin to challenge you to begin to think about your money right now. Whose is your money that's sitting in your wallet right now? Is it your parents? In some regards, yes, they have some stewardship, they have some responsibility over you, but even ultimately beyond that, it is the Lord's. 
He has provided it to you, and therefore he, in a sense, has given you a stewardship of it so that you have a responsibility how you manage it and how you handle it in such a way that it would honor him. Uh, one of the things I want to challenge you guys to begin to think about is even giving right now. It's not a matter of how much you give, all right? But, but learning the tendency, learning the spiritual discipline of giving right now, even if it's a dollar a week to something, is a great discipline in which you're beginning to learn what God has designed you to do and how he's designed you and called you to live. So we're going to give you guys a few opportunities even uh, here in our midst. Uh, one of the things we're going to do next week, we're going to, after the service, we're going to serve you guys a basic, simple meal. We're going to do peanut butter and jelly, all right? And we're going to challenge you guys. I'd love for you guys to hang with us, eat with us, commune with us. And then we're going to challenge you guys, whatever you would have spent for lunch, we'd love for you guys to contribute it. And we're going to take that money toward a program that Consol High School is doing right across the street from us. So there's a bunch of poor, needy families that are there and that have, uh, uh, that have asked for help. And, and even some that have said they would even, wouldn't even mind a church being part of that. And so we're going to have an opportunity to provide gifts, to provide Christmas to a bunch of families and kids right across the street from us. And so it's one of the things we're going to do next week uh, after we serve lunch. We're going to invite you guys to be a part of that. And whatever we collect, we're going to put towards that. Another thing you can do, one of the things that was even mentioned this morning, there's going to be a Jingle Bell fun run coming up on Saturday and, and all the proceeds and the registration costs toward that that will be on Saturday morning for uh, the Masterpiece Conference's mission part is going to go towards six different missions agencies. And so one of the things we're, we're trying to challenge you guys to do one of the things we're always trying to put in front of you guys is ways and opportunities to use your money to glorify God. All right, it, it isn't that taking and going out to eat is wrong, all right? I'm not trying to take you that direction. What I'm trying to get you guys to see is that all that God has provided is His. And as it sits in your wallet, as it sits in your hands, as you get a paycheck one day, you don't get that because you worked hard. You get that because He's provided it and given you an opportunity to use it for His glory and for His kingdom. And the question is, how will you invest it? How will you use it? has as much to do with your heart and worship as as much to do with the songs that you sing is what we do with our money. It's not divorced from spirituality and so much in a college-only setting, we don't talk about it at all. And as a church, it's a bit awkward to talk about it, to be perfectly honest, all right? It seems like there's a conflict of interest, right? Uh, but one of the things I want to challenge you guys to do, you may not know this, but there's a black box in the back table there. We don't talk about this every week, but it's there so that for you guys who are visiting, if you fill out a howdy card, that's where we put it so that we know you visited. If you want to sign up for a small group, especially as the spring begins again, we put those right in that black box, but it's also there for offerings. And so if you guys have a desire or have any uh, kind of leading at some point to begin to give, that's a great spot. You just give it and we put it toward kind of church ministry and, and to what is going on here in the body so that we can serve you guys. And so that's why that's there. We don't hit it every week. We don't beat it down or hammer it. But I do want to challenge you to begin to think about how you view your money. Because how you're beginning to view it now is setting up some patterns and some mental paradigms for how you're going to view it and how you're going to use it even once you graduate and Lord willing, get a job and get a paycheck, all right? So what you see though is Abraham responds and he tithes and he gives back to God. And notice though where we go next, notice what happens. Kind of the last half of this passage, we're going to see that it's not just that Jesus is an eternally superior one and a kingly one, but he's going to be a new and different one. Here is why he's so worthy of worship and here is why he's so worthy even of our offering. And we're going to see that in a sense, Jesus' priesthood is going to be a new one and it's going to replace the old priesthood. It's going to be done away with because in a sense, if you heard the phrase, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, it was broke and God kindly finally comes and he fixes it. Notice what he does and notice why it was broke. Verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood from the basis of it, the people received the law. What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? All right, what's, what's he saying? He's saying essentially this. Hey, 
if the Old Testament priesthood allowed you and I to be pushed toward perfection, if it cleansed us from our sin and allowed us to be transformed, and there, then why was there a need for another priesthood? The writer's going to say there was a need and there is going to be another priesthood that will emerge as Jesus Christ because it's going to come and it's going to fix what was wrong with law, what was wrong with the Old Testament priesthood and law. Notice he says in verse 12, when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes a place a change of law also. The Old Testament refers, the law is referring to all those commands, all those things, not just the Ten Commandments, but even all those rituals, all the ceremonial laws, all the things from grain to animal sacrifices, it included all of that. And the priesthood was very much a part of that. And so if the priesthood changes, the law has to change also. Let me give you guys kind of, and we're going to come up to these themes a lot as we walk through the book of Hebrews in the spring. And I'm going to give you guys just a quick sampling to give you guys a sense of where we're going to go in a little bit. Essentially, what was the purpose of the law? When Jesus comes, he's going to come, he's going to provide a better law. All right. In fact, Galatians, Paul will say this. Therefore, the Old Testament law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. What was the purpose of the Old Testament law? Ultimately, it was to reveal the righteousness of God. It was to reveal the character of God and what he called the people of God to do in order to have fellowship with him. But ultimately, in the way that the law functioned in their life, it was to be a tutor to reveal to them that they needed a righteous Savior. It was, in in a sense, supposed to lead them to Jesus Christ himself. And Paul will say, though, when Jesus Christ has come, the tutor is no longer needed and you're not under the tutor anymore. The Old Testament law has been replaced and done away with. Romans will say it like this. Here's why it was broke. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, being justified as a gift by his grace. Ultimately, Paul will argue in Romans that the law could not bring the righteousness of God. It could not make you righteous. It could not forgive you of your sins. It could not justify you, make you right in God's eyes. In a sense, it was a ruler to show you how poorly you measured up. It was a ruler that showed you what God required and the fact that you couldn't meet it. And so apart from that, Jesus Christ shows up on the scene and he is going to be that which provides righteousness, that which provides life. In fact, what we're going to see is that not just that Jesus comes as a new priest, but he's going to make a dramatic change for you and I. Paul will begin to speak of that dramatic change that will happen for those of us who've trusted in Jesus Christ. And he says this in Romans 8, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the Old Testament law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh, God did. Point is, the Old Testament law was broken. It it needed to be fixed. And God did it by sending his son as an offering for sin. Hebrews will say in a little while in chapter 10 that the blood of bulls and goats could not cleanse us from sin. The Old Testament law provided a covering over our sin until a time in which Jesus finally will be the payment for our sin and to cleanse and to bring righteousness to us so that we can fulfill the requirement of the law who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. It's interesting. Notice the change that's going to happen when the Old Testament law is put aside and you and I get a new law that comes with Jesus Christ. And we'll talk a little bit more about that even in the spring. Notice the change. One, God actually can deal with the penalty for our sin. He can cleanse us, but he can also allow us to now begin to walk according to that which he requires. It's not just that Jesus as priest will cleanse us when he offers his own blood on our behalf a better sacrifice than the Old Testament ever had. But not only does it cleanse us, but he also begins to bring a change about so that you and I can actually fulfill what he required us to do. 
The Old Testament is almost like a ruler that just showed you, you don't do well, and here's how badly you do, all right? What, what Jesus is going to do is he, as he comes in and as a new law and a new covenant will come, a new agreement in which God works with humanity, is that he's not just going to cleanse us from our penalty and our sin, but he's going to begin to transform us so that we can actually fulfill what he wants us to do. In fact, Jeremiah will pull that in Jeremiah 31, and this is huge, all right? Notice he says this, Behold, days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah. A covenant that will come in the future, not yet. And it's a covenant that's not like the covenant which I made with their fathers outside of the land of Egypt. It says, hey, there's going to be an agreement that I'm going to make with humanity, and it's not going to be like the agreement I made with humanity at Egypt. What particular agreement was that? That was the one that regarded the Old Testament law. He says, hey, a new covenant is coming that's different than that one. In fact, Hebrews will say later that when the new one comes, it replaces the old and it's done away with. And and when it comes, here's what it's going to do. I will put my law within them and on their heart, I will write it. What Jeremiah is saying, foretelling of a day that's coming, is a day that's begun and yet it's not finished for you and I. It's a day that's begun, but it's not finished for you and I, in which Jesus Christ, the priest, has come and he's arriven and he's driven away and he's done away with the Old Testament law. This is why you and I are not sacrificing animals in the sanctuary or up here, all right? One, that's messy. Two, we don't have to anymore. Uh, three, I'd faint, okay? Four, um, ultimately those sacrifices didn't cleanse sin, all right? And, and fifthly, that code of living didn't actually transform and enable humanity to fulfill what God wanted them to do. What Jeremiah is saying here is a day is coming when God's going to take that Old Testament external code of righteousness that was on tablets and that was external to them there's only a ruler to them and he's going to put it within their hearts so that, so that it becomes slowly but surely the, the instinctual nature of their heart. In fact, he's going to say later on that in that new covenant, he's also going to put his spirit within them so that they will be able to walk with him. The great wonder of the priesthood of Jesus is that he actually can forgive us of our sins so that we can have confidence to come before God. And secondly, that when he is installed as priest and he brings a new covenant that we'll talk a lot more about in the spring, what he does for you and I is not just cleanse us from our sins, but it begins to transform our heart and it begins to give us an ability to actually walk with him. In the Old Testament, God will say over and over again to the nation of Israel, oh, that they had had a heart to obey me. In fact, we'll get to the New Testament, we'll find not only do they not have a heart to obey God, not only did they not really desire to obey God, but they had no ability to obey him. And we're going to see as we walk through the New Testament, the spirit that comes in and dwells you and I that have come to trust Jesus Christ is beginning to transform us from the inside out so that it's not just that we have our, our, our sins and our debt removed, but that we actually begin to find a growing desire to know and to walk with God and an ability to actually do that which he's called us to. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, when the commands of the scriptures come about and he tells you to be perfect as the heavenly father is perfect, he calls you to love your wife, he calls you to do things. The reality for you and I who have never trusted in Jesus Christ is that those commands imply and show inability for you and I. There's no way to live as God has called us to unless he comes and he does something within us. The reason why a lot of our lives are broken, the reason why a lot of us are still struggling even as we've trusted in Jesus Christ is because the work is not yet done. You and I are still struggling, and yet the Spirit is slowly but surely growing within us a growing desire for righteousness, and slowly but surely growing within us a growing ability to actually overcome sin. And in light of that, because of that, this priest brings a greater hope. In fact, notice that's exactly what he's going to say as he wraps up this passage, as we wrap it up this morning. He says, chapter 7, verse 19. Not only does this priest bring a new law, but he also brings a new and a better hope. It says in verse 19, that on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. 
The reason why this priest brings better hope is that this priest with his own sacrifice can cleanse us from sin. And this priest with his own sacrifice brings in a whole new law and a whole new mode of us walking with him that doesn't just cleanse us from sin, but begins to give us the the ability and even the desire to overcome sin, to overcome patterns and struggles and desires that we know are contrary to him. I'll tell you that that's that's a work and that's a progress that's going on and will go on for the rest of our lives. The fundamental experience for those of us who know Jesus Christ is one of groaning because what God is beginning to do and what he's continuing to do, he's going to complete in a future day. He will not complete it now. But even now, even though you and I are groaning and at times struggling, there is an ability and a freedom and a possibility for victory over sin that has enslaved us and owned us for so long. And the great wonder is that it comes from one who comes in a manger and he comes at Christmas time in such weeness and in such smallness and such seemingly lack of power. And yet this will be one who can grant us access to God unlike any other. And it's going to be one who can come with the power of God unlike any other to not just provide us access, but to change our lives and to change our status and to change us and allow us to find freedom from the very things that we struggle with. You and I are going to struggle for a lifetime. The question is, is there freedom and is there hope to overcome those things or are we just slaves to them? If there's no hope, there's no reason to worship. But we worship one who's provided us a better hope because he's come not just to cleanse us from those sins, but even to provide us freedom and victory over them. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what you're struggling with. But the reason that we continue to challenge you guys to come to Jesus Christ is because he's the only one that can forgive and he's the only one that can provide freedom. He forgives and he frees. He redeems and he restores. There's none other that do that. You know, I, I want to close real quick with uh, one quick story in John 7. And, and I, I kind of come back to this a lot for myself. You know, there are times when I find things in the scriptures or there are times when life goes certain ways and I wonder, why in the world? <laughs> why Jesus? Why are you this way? Why do you work this way? And, and John 7 always kind of challenges me. Jesus is teaching a bunch to a crowd. And what happens is in verse chapter 7, I'm just going to read it to you guys. Verse 59, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And therefore, many of the disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said, does this cause you to grumble? And they continue on in verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and they were not walking with him anymore. A bunch of people were challenged by life, challenged by what he had to say, challenged by what the teaching of the scriptures. And they said, you know, I'm out of here. And so he turns and he says to the disciples, are you guys going to take off too? Simon Peter says this, verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And what's fascinating to me is Peter says, (laughs) we know you and yet we don't always understand you. And we don't always get the way that you work. And yet the reality is I have nowhere else to go. (laughs) It is Jesus who alone has words of eternal life. It's Jesus alone who can forgive and who can free. And so let me challenge you in the midst of wherever you are this morning and whatever circumstantial struggle you're in or whatever belief struggle you're in, let me continue and challenge you to continue to come to Jesus. He's the only one that has words of eternal life. And at times we're going to realize we don't always get it. We don't always agree with him. We don't always like the way that he works. And yet I'm going to challenge you not to forsake him, to continue to cling to him and continue to pursue him. Even in the next week and a half when life gets kind of crazy and kind of stressful, let me encourage you, you need Christ even then. Christ is not just about your spiritual life, but he's about every arena of your life, your financial life, and even your academic life, all right? 
So don't forsake him. Don't uh, leave him in the midst of stress of finals, but continue to pursue him. Continue to ask for him to provide you the peace and even righteousness as you walk through that phase, as you study hard, as you get stressed. Asking him to intervene, asking him to provide you help in your time of need because he's a priest who has all access to the blessings of God. He has all the power of God and he's always ready and he's always available to be our mediator, to be our advocate, to always be ready to help. So let me pray for us this morning. Father God, we give you great thanks that your son, Jesus Christ, forgives us, that he frees us. Father, I pray that you give us great confidence to pursue him, to come and to approach. Father, I pray that you, for many of us, in the, in the reasons and the ways that we might fail to approach, the reasons why we think we can't, Lord, I pray that you would do away with those, that you would identify those, and that you would allow us to see that your hands and your arms are open, inviting and calling us forward. Father, for some of us, I asked, maybe for us, it's the first time we'd ever come to know you, Lord, I pray that we'd walk through those doors even this Christmas season. As you see that you came and left the glories of heaven to come and intervene on our behalf in a way that you still do today. As our advocate, as our intercessor, as our intervener, Lord. Father, I thank you that you are the creator and the sustainer, that you've not left us, but yet you've intervened to change our status, to change our lives. And I pray that we wouldn't forsake you, and that we know you more deeply, and that we'd pursue you more fervently, even during finals and even over the winter break. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. All right, thanks for being here this morning, and we'll see you guys next week as well.